Good morning, everybody. It is great to be back with you. My name is Scott Zeller. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, my wife and I and our children have been traveling in the U.S. over the last month. It was a joy to visit some family for a couple weeks, as well as spend several weeks in ministry and preaching in a few different churches and fellowshipping with churches uh, that pray for and support uh, the work here in Dubai. And every time I'm in the U.S., it's, it's always a blessing to me and the reminder of how many people around the world know about what's going on here, know about the advance of the gospel in this city, and are praying for it. Um, this morning, we actually have two people with us that um, are among those that have been praying for the work here in Dubai for a number of years. So much so, and with such great heart, that they've actually decided to move here to Dubai. Um, John and Caroline, do you want to come up here? Let me introduce you. John and Caroline Norris have just moved here to Dubai, arriving on Monday evening. I met John over three years ago, something like that. Um, and he was in the middle of his pastoral studies at Bethlehem Seminary in Minneapolis, the U.S., where John Piper is the chancellor. And John was considering where the Lord would take them in ministry after seminary, um, thinking about different options. But as we started talking about Dubai, uh, they were immediately interested, or at least it seemed immediately interested, um, and started considering if the Lord would, would bring them here. So after praying and discussions over the years and visiting, um, we're excited to have John and Caroline finally uh, join us here in Dubai. John is joining the church staff as, one, as our pastoral resident, so he'll be with us for some time. Um, being part of the ministry of the church, you'll see him involved in various capacities. And then long term, they hope to be involved in church planting here in the region. And so maybe in Dubai, maybe in another part of this, um, this region, but hopefully part of what the Lord is doing to raise up new churches for the advance of the gospel in this place. So John and Caroline are, are joined by their son, Finn, who's uh, in Redeemer Kids, and this is their daughter, Piper. Well, let me pray for them um, and as we welcome them here to Dubai and to Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the work that you are doing here in Dubai and in the Emirates and in the Middle East and in the 1040 window. Father, you are faithful to build your church and advance your gospel. And what a privilege that you do it through normal people like us. Father, we thank you for calling specific people unto that work in a special way and, and raising up some to be teachers and leaders. And we, so we thank you for John and the gifts and abilities that you have given him. We pray for him and Caroline as they begin to settle here in Dubai. And we pray that you would bless them as they do. Help them quickly establish their home, that they can begin to build relationships and minister in this community. We pray that you would bless their ministry, that as a result of their step of faith in coming here, that there will be great fruit for the gospel. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Well, isn't it exciting to see the work that the Lord has been doing over these last years in the Emirates? Whether you're new here, you just moved to Dubai, or you've been here for many years, the story of the last decade or so in Dubai and in the Emirates is an exciting one. We've seen churches planted. And beyond churches planted, we, we've seen just people in the regular walks of life become aware of the, the realities of the gospel as you're faithfully sharing in your workplaces and in your neighborhoods, as you're, as church members intentionally investing in one another, the gospel is bearing fruit in this place. It's exciting. that As we look back, we, we have hope for the future. And that's really what we want to talk about this morning. 
the power of our memory and the importance of remembering. You see, by remembering God's work in the days gone by, it helps us know what to do in the present, and it gives us hope for what he is to do in the future. We don't spend much time thinking about memory. Most of the time when we think about memory, it's in more of a casual way, like, oh, remember that time we went to the beach? Or, do you remember where I put my phone? Do you remember where my keys are? We normally think about memory in that sort of more casual way, but memory is extremely powerful. In his famous confessions, the church father Augustine, he devoted a whole section to the idea and into meditating on this idea of memory and remembering. In one place he says this, see if you can follow this. Here, in my memory, are all the things I experienced myself or took on the trust of others. From this store of things, there are new and ever newer representations of my experiences or of the things accepted in the past on the basis of trust. These I recombine with representations of the past to ponder future actions, their consequences, and possibilities. Now, that's a little complicated, but what Augustine is pointing out is that fundamental reality that our past experiences are what we consider in the present to make decisions about our hopes for the future. So let me say that again a little bit more plainly. The goal of remembering is to bring the past into the present to give us hope for the future. Now, if that's true, what we remember and how we remember it, and, and why we remember it is of utmost importance. And we need to think deeply about that. And that's what is front and center in our passage today in Joshua chapter 4. The act of remembering is taking center stage. And as I hope as you, you read through Joshua 4 there with us, and what we're going to look at this morning, is that the Lord wants his people to remember something. So we're going to look at what he wants them to remember And we're going to look at how he wants them to remember it. And then lastly, why he wants them to remember it. So first, let's look at what the Lord wants his people to remember. What is the background? What is the context for this act of remembering? Well, the Lord wants them to remember that he is with them to deliver them. The Lord wants them to remember that he is with them to deliver them. What we see recorded here in Joshua chapter 4 in this section of the book of Joshua, that's really chapters 3 to 5, it's an extremely pivotal moment in redemptive history. In the history of Israel, and really the history of God's people from Genesis to Revelation, and even to today, this is is an, an astounding moment of history. The crossing of the Jordan River. Now, if you don't know the history of this, it might sound not that interesting. You think, I cross Dubai Creek every day. You just go over the bridge. Well, that's not what this was. This was an amazing moment because this moment had been prophesied and had been looked forward to for decades. Indeed, even 400 years before that, been promised to the father of the nation, Abraham, that one day his people would enter the promised land. But they didn't enter the land at that time. In fact, they went into captivity in Egypt and they were slaves for hundreds of years. And then after being rescued and released from the land of Egypt, they were brought to the border of the promised land. But rather than trust the Lord to bring them in, they chose their own way. They chose disobedience. So in the shame of their sin, the Lord caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So these people, first slaves, then nomads, 
we're now finally, finally able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, as you might say. They were able to see to the other side. They were able to see to the other side where the grass literally was greener. And they knew that it was about time. Time for them, finally, to enter the land, to enter that place, that place of dwelling, that place of rest, and that place where they and their children and their children's children could thrive. Can you imagine the anticipation and the excitement that was in their hearts? For three days, they were told to to camp there by the bank of the river until it was the right time to cross. And you imagine yourself, here you are, part of this great number of people. There was tens and hundreds of thousands of people. We don't know exactly how many, but we know their army alone was 40,000 people. And imagine that with all of their goods, all of their animals, everything that they owned, this whole mass of humanity camped there by the banks of the river. And this was no small river. This was a raging river. It says in our text that it was the harvest time and the time when the banks of the river were even overflowing. So imagine you're, you're camped there and you're chatting with your friends thinking, okay, I know that we're supposed to get to the other side, but do you see any boats? No, I don't see any boats. Do you see a bridge? No, I don't see a bridge. How are they going to do it? How are they going to enter the promised land? How are they going to be rescued from this generation, this shameful generation that had just been wandering without purpose? How is it going to happen? The Lord was going to do it. The Lord was going to make a way. It's amazing. It's a complete miracle. What happens is that the Lord sends ahead of the people the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was just this very small box about this big, carried on two poles by the priests. But what it symbolized was enormous. What it symbolized was the very presence of God. The ark was the very presence of God among them. So holy was the ark that later we'll read um, in the history of Israel that someone touches the ark without authorization and he dies on the spot. The ark is kept in the holies of holies of the temple. It is the very presence of God to be revered and honored because it is him with his people. So the presence of God goes out in front of them to lead them. And as that leads them into the river, the river dries up. A way is made where it is literally impossible. This is no simple pathway or floating bridge over the river. The river is piled up in a heap. It's as if he takes it and just puts it over here. And not only does he move the water, but it says they walk on dry ground. Now, maybe by some incredible feat of engineering, you could redirect a river. Or if you're in Dubai, you can create a river where there's not one. Maybe you could do that if you had the time, the money, the materials. But nobody can just make water stop and then make the ground immediately dry enough to walk on. This is an incredible miracle that the Lord does for his people. The presence of the Lord goes out in front of them and then it rests there in the middle of the water. And as the people rush by, all of them see what's happening because God is with them. They are being delivered into the place of rest. 
Again, think of that image. Maybe you weren't close to the banks. Maybe you were far away. And as you come and it's your turn to cross the banks into the river, you see what's happening. And you see, how is this happening? How are we walking through the water? And then as you get to the middle of the river, you see, oh, God is with us. God's presence is here with us. He is the one who is stopping the water and delivering us to the other side. You know, one of the most repeated phrases in this chapter, I counted at least 11 times in these 24 verses, is the idea of passing over. It's repeated. It says, pass over and passed over and passing over again and again and again. And what we know that 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 is meant to do is highlight to us what's going on here. And it's meant to draw our memories to something that happened in the past for this nation. You might be familiar with the idea of the Passover feast. This Passover feast was inaugurated back when they were in Egypt, back when they were slaves and the Lord was rescuing them from the oppression and the slavery that they experienced in Egypt. And he was doing that through a series of miracles, the last of which was that he was going to send an angel of judgment, an angel of death. And that angel of death was going to kill the firstborn son of every household to punish them for the way in which they treated his people. But because his people were among them, they also needed to be rescued from that judgment. And he made a way for them. He told them to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and to kill that lamb and put its blood on their doorpost. And when the angel of death saw their home that had the blood on the doorpost, he would pass by. He would pass over. And so then began the feast of Passover, When the people of Israel would celebrate that God delivered them and he did not judge them, but rather he saved them from judgment. Well, in that first Passover, now we see, in a sense, a second act in this divine redemptive grace. The Lord passed over them in judgment, and now he is allowing them to pass over the waters of judgment of the Jordan. Rather than being consumed by the waters, they are passing over it into the promised land, passing over the waters, passing out of the punishment of wandering. Well, for us on this side of the cross, these two ideas of of passing over, this passing over out of slavery, passing over out of guilt and shame, these two things are combined in the one idea of saving faith in Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says that we are set free from sin if we are in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. And then in chapter 8, he reminds us, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. You're not wandering out in the wilderness, forced to think constantly of your guilt and your shame and the way that you and your parents were rebellious. No, there is no condemnation. You are welcomed. You are delivered into the land, into his rest. If you confess your sins... And trust in Christ for salvation. Trust in him as your Passover lamb. The one who by his death has put his blood on the doorpost of your life, of your heart. Then the Lord delivers you into his rest. Friend, have you trusted in Christ for salvation? Have you looked to his presence in your life to deliver you? Because it's only by his presence that you can be delivered. That is what the Lord wants his people to remember. 
This is also what's recorded in the letter to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. It says, remember then, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Friends, remember what the Lord has done. Remember that by his presence is how we might be delivered just as the people were. Well, the second thing that the Lord wants his people to see here is how he wants them to remember it. So he wants them to remember the what of his presence and deliverance. Now, how does he want them to remember it? Well, just what we learned here in chapter 4 is it, it's actually not unique to chapter 4, what I just told you. If you had started in chapter 3 and, and read through chapter 4, you would have said, well, wait, we just heard about this. Because chapter 3 also contains the story of crossing the Jordan River. Now chapter 4, again, is talking about the same thing, of crossing the Jordan. So what's going on here? This is something we see in the Hebrew Bible in different places, like in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of creation. But then Genesis chapter 2 returns back to the same story to tell in a little bit more detail something that's very important. Genesis chapter 2 returns to the story of creation and tells in more detail about the creation of man and woman. Well, that's what's happening here, is that they've told the story of the crossing of the Jordan, but now the author wants to return back to that story and say, well, wait just one second. Before we move on from this, the most important thing that you actually need to know about this story is this. And we get the more detail about these 12 stones. What's unique here is that what God wants to do is not just have some miraculous event take place, but he wants them to remember what he did. As they crossed the river, one representative from each tribe was to take a stone from the middle of the river. Take a stone from exactly where the priest stood holding the ark. Symbolically taking the presence of the Lord with them out of the Jordan. Saying this is what the Lord did for us. His presence in the middle of the Jordan delivered us from that sin, that shame, that judgment. And it brought us into the promised land. So they symbolically did that with a rock, taking it from the bottom of the river and putting it as a memorial on the other side. Now this is fascinating because if you think about most countries and what they build memorials for and when they build them, most of the time it's after some kind of military conquest, isn't it? It's some general or some president who's done something tremendous, who's won some battle, who's done something amazing for his country. Well, here, they've not fought any battles yet. They're about to enter the land to fight. All they've done is taken a walk. But the Lord wants them to remember. He wants them to remember as they go out and fight these battles in the land to drive out the people that are there. He wants them to remember that what is important is not their actions in battle, but it's his actions on their behalf to deliver them. That's what he wants them to remember. So they build this monument. They build this memorial. You see, the Lord knows that we are a forgetful people, doesn't he? A forgetful people. He'd already seen that in this nation of Israel, who he was delivering in the process of delivering. He as soon as he had taken them out of the land of Egypt and rescued them miraculously through the Red Sea, again putting the water up in a heap and allowing the people to pass through, they had gone to the the foot of Mount Sinai. 
And the Lord was establishing his covenant with them. And he called the leader Moses up to the mountain so that he could give him his instructions. And what did the people do while Moses was up on the mountain for a few days? Did they remember the Lord? No, what they did was they moved to create a different kind of memorial. They moved to create an idol. They wanted something that they could see, that could give them assurance that they could worship, something of their own making. Rather than remember the Lord and what he had done for them, they sought to create new memories of their own making. And don't we do the same thing? Rather than trust the Lord and and look on what he has put in our lives for our remembrance of his truth, we seek to create new things in our life, to build new memorials that we can look at for assurance. We don't necessarily need 12 stones in our front yard, but we wouldn't mind 12,000 dirhams in our bank account. We seek to build the memorial, the, 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 the thing of assurance at Emirates NBD. We, think, we seek to build something of assurance in our home. We seek to build something of assurance in our reputation. We want to build something that we can look to to give us confidence for the future. And the Lord's saying, don't do that. Don't you worry about building something because I have already done everything that you need to have full hope and assurance for the future. So I want you to build this memorial so you can remember what I have done. Well, the Lord has given us not 12 stones in this day, but he has given us ways and means for us to remember him. I just want to point out two to you very quickly. We already mentioned the Passover feast. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but as we read through these verses, you would have noticed that it tells us exactly what day of the year they crossed the Jordan. Why is that significant? That day of the year that, it's, that we're told about there in that passage is the day of the year where the people were to select the lamb for Passover. The very day of the year when everybody's mind would have been thinking about the Passover feast, would have been thinking about their need for a lamb to be slaughtered to save them. That's the day that they passed over into the promised land. The symbolism is thick, and many years later, another Passover meal will be celebrated not far from there in Jerusalem, this time by Jesus and his disciples. Jesus Christ in the upper room with his disciples took bread in that Passover meal, and he broke it, telling his disciples, this symbolizes my body broken for you. And then he poured out the wine And he said, this symbolizes my blood shed for you. What he was doing was he was taking that Passover feast where a lamb was to stand in place of the people. And he was telling them, I now am the true lamb, the sacrifice once for all that will stand in place of your sin so that judgment might pass over you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus Christ graciously gave us and instituted the Lord's Supper so that every time we gather together here at Redeemer, we do this monthly. We gather for the Lord's Supper together. We aren't simply having a light snack together. We are remembering the Lord. We are remembering that which we will celebrate for all eternity. 
When in heaven around the throne we're, we're praising the Lord, we'll join with the angels and seraphim that are there now, praising him, the lamb who was slain, who is worthy to receive honor and glory and power and dominion. That's who we will be praising because we remembered him. The second thing that we way we remember the Lord these days is by the testimony of those men that were around that table with him. One fell away, others were added. And again, we don't have 12 stones, but those 12 apostles then went out and gave testimony to what they knew of the Lord. And Ephesians tells us that the whole church is built on the testimony of the apostles and prophets that we have recorded in Scripture. So friends, if you want to remember the Lord, look to Scripture. It was so encouraging this last week, several of our youth Um, came together. They're out of school, but they wanted to study. They came together at the Redeemer Villa, where we have our offices. And this whole week, four or five days at least, all afternoon, studying the book of Genesis together. What a way to remember the Lord and all the great things he has done by studying him in Scripture. Friends, take opportunities with one another to remind one another what God has done by looking to his word. Well, we are called to remember the Lord, just as he did. We are forgetful people. We need to be reminded. And the Lord has given us ways to remember him. But then the third thing that this passage shows us is why. Why should we remember the Lord? He's shown us what to remember. That he is with us to deliver us. He's shown us how to remember him. By remembering what he has done. By putting things in our life that point to his great deeds. Well, lastly, he says, why? Why should we do this? And I think we see at least three reasons why, and there are actually three groups of people. The reason why we need to remember is for the sake of three different groups of people. The first reason why we need to remember is for the sake of children. You probably noticed twice in this passage, in verse 6 and in verse 21, The Lord clearly states his anticipation that children will ask, what are these stones for? What is the meaning of these stones? Why why is there this pile of rocks that we think is so important? And the Lord's clear expectation is, is that parents and those around those children, those hearing that question, are going to be ready to respond and eager to tell the children about what the Lord has done. We must never neglect to raise up our children in the way that they should go in the Lord. Children have such marvelous imaginations and sense of wonder about the world. And very often, children are asking the questions about the things that we need to remember. So we must remember those things. We must tell them about those things. In several places, the theologian D.A. Carson talks about how quickly the gospel can be lost. He talks about how in one generation the gospel is accepted. And I hope for many of you that's you, that you have accepted the gospel and that you are following Christ with your life. But then how quickly the gospel can simply be assumed in that second generation, that rather than teaching children, rather than teaching the next generation, rather than making disciples, we simply assume that the gospel is known. And and actually what's happening is that the gospel hasn't been passed on. What's been passed on is a set of behaviors and religious activities that is void of true 
biblical Christianity. So the gospel is assumed, and then very quickly after that, the gospel is confused and compromised. False teaching creeps in, and the gospel is lost. So friends, let's not assume the gospel with our children. Let's not assume the gospel with our spiritual children, with those the Lord puts in our life to disciple. Let's explicitly talk about the great things that the Lord has done. Let's answer questions, not with just a surface answer, but with answers that point to the greatness of our Lord. Let me ask you this, parents. Are you willing to answer the questions of your children? Do you see those as God-given opportunities to pass on the gospel to the next generation? Or are you too busy on Facebook? Are you too busy at work? Are you too busy making the next meal to be bothered by your children? Go talk to your mom about it. Go ask your father. No, answer the question. Love your children by answering the questions that they bring up to you. Are you available to answer the questions of your children? As you honestly assessed the last week, did you intentionally create space that would make it possible for your children to talk to you? Or was there just those hurried moments at at the end of a meal where everybody was kind of doing their own thing and he was on his phone and the food was coming this way and everything was going on and then you get 30 seconds of peace and you say, okay, um, how's everybody doing? Everybody fine? Okay. And then you move on. That's, That's not enough, friends. In our hurried lives, we must make time where our children feel safe and feel like there's potential and opportunity to where if they ask a question, they'll get an unhurried answer. Do you encourage questions from your children? Do you encourage questions from your children? You know, sometimes children ask questions that we would have never anticipated. But sometimes children don't know what to ask. And that's why I think in this passage, the Lord is doing this. He's, he's putting out there something that children could see that they would ask about. And again, as you assess your life, if, if your children had big questions about your life and the things that they observe in your life, what would they ask about? Again, honestly, as I assess my own life, I think my children would ask me questions like, why do you spend so much time on your phone? What is the meaning of your phone? What is the meaning of so much coffee? There's so many things that we fill our life with that actually at the end of the day are not intentionally meant to bring up the next generation in the gospel. Now, those are not bad things. But friends, what are you putting in your life intentionally to spur questions so that you might speak of Jesus to others? Our Redeemer Church Covenant, if you are a member here, says that we promise to bring up our children and youth in the training and instruction of the Lord. So even if you don't personally have children of your own, friends, take that responsibility to lovingly answer questions from the next generation. The second group, the second reason why we need to remember is for the sake of the nations. It's for the sake of the nations. In verse 24, the Lord says, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You know, so often we think that this idea of all nations worshiping Jesus was invented in the New Testament. 
And somehow at Matthew 28, God started thinking about the entire world. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. God is the one who created nations. He, he called them into existence. He, he is the one who promised to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And that all nations of the earth, all the families of the earth, will be blessed because of what happens in Abraham. And then here again, regularly, a drumbeat throughout the Old Testament into the New is this trajectory of God's promise and truth out to all nations. And we see that here as well. That God's presence and his deliverance of his people is for the sake of the nations. My friends, if if you've been around Redeemer Church much, you know that we're passionate about making disciples of all nations. You know that we seek to to make disciples by planting more churches. We seek to make disciples by encouraging you to witness, to speak of Jesus in your workplaces and in your families and in your neighborhoods. But you know what's interesting about this passage? Is that what needs to happen for the sake of the nations is for you to remember. And I think that's an important thing to think about. Is that before you run ahead in your passion which I hope that you have, to reach all nations, the first person that needs to be told and reminded of the gospel by you each day is you. You cannot live for the sake of the nations if you haven't first remembered the gospel in your own heart. Friend, preach the gospel to yourself. Start each day reminding yourself that God is with you to deliver you from your sin and your shame to call you into his rest, and that will lead you to think about that day when all tribes and tongues will be around his throne. And that will spur you to live for the sake of the nations. Remembering will lead to the nations. Thirdly and finally, the last reason why we need to remember is for the sake of our own eternal soul. The last reason we need to remember is for the sake of our own eternal soul. Notice the last words there of the chapter. That you might fear the Lord your God forever. Now the idea of fear here is is not fright. It's not being scared of a ghost or the unknown. But it is having the appropriate reverent honor for what you do know. The idea is having humility in light of knowing something that's greater. And that happens when we remember the Lord. And we remember what he has done. We remember that there is no room for our boasting because he, has, he is the one who has brought us through. We remember that he is the one that has saved us. We remember that he doesn't remember our sins. Friends, put him in remembrance. Remember the Lord. Your eternal soul is dependent on what you remember about the Lord. As you remember his great deeds, as you remember his sacrificial death on the cross, that will give you sure and lasting hope for the future. Friends, remember. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would Cause us to remember that we would live in in such a way that calls to mind the great things that you have done. That rather than live for the great things that we think we can do, we would rest in what you have done. 
Lord, cause us to remember your greatness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.